Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, it is good to be in the house of the Lord. It is good to be able to sing praises, hymns unto your name, for you are worthy of all praise and honor. We know that our praise is inadequate, but we pray that it has been sanctified by Christ himself so that it is acceptable to thee. We know, Father, that we are sinners in need of your grace each and every hour. And we thank you that it is supplied to us as your children by your Spirit. We pray even now, Father, that our hearts are prepared to hear your word, that your Spirit would work in our lives. For we know that we need his work to accomplish so that we might be honoring to you. We thank you for the righteousness of Christ that makes us acceptable in your sight. We thank you, Father, that he paid the price for our sins so that we might come together and worship you in truth and spirit. Pray that you would give us knowledge as we study your word today. That as we continue to seek to understand the gospel and understand our responsibility to proclaim the gospel to every man, that we would be faithful in this task to clearly explain the gospel as presented in your word. For we know that the gospel is their only hope. We pray, Father, that you would use us as members of this church to be faithful to that task of confronting men of their lost condition and their need of Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. We thank you, Father, that you are adding to your kingdom each and every day. And as the gospel is proclaimed throughout the world this day, we know that many will come into your kingdom and we give you praise and thanks for that. We pray for our service, for those that do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation for them. And Father, that you would renew the commitment of your children to be faithful to the task that you call us to. We pray, Father, for those who are unable to be with us this day. We know that many of our members are away on holiday, and we pray that as they worship elsewhere, that you would bless their time together with other believers. Pray that you would bring them back to us quickly and safely. Pray for those who would be ill, that your healing hand would be upon their body and that you would restore their health. We pray for those who need comfort, that you would comfort them as only you can. We pray also for those who are not in attendance due to lack of concern for their own soul and pray that you would stir their hearts so that they might not forsake assembling together of the brethren. Pray that all that would be said and done would be pleasing to you this day. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles again and turn with me to Romans chapter 1 and we will read verse 16 and 17 for our text today. Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Last week, we began to look at this particular passage, and we looked at the first portion of these two verses. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, For everyone who believes. And I asked you the question, what is the gospel? And I hope I began well in teaching what the gospel is. If you do not know what the gospel is, do you really understand the gospel? We must understand the gospel first and foremost for our own salvation. And second, so that we might be able to share the gospel with others who are unconverted. So what we are looking at is extremely Important. It's not that other sermons are not important, but this is extremely important because this is the foundation of the Christian faith. 
I pointed out that the gospel can be condensed, even though we are looking at it in more or less a condensed form. The entire Word of God is more or less the gospel. We call it redemption history, which is from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And we need to understand redemption history. In other words, how God has worked throughout creation to bring about His glory and honor to Himself and saving His people from their sins. And we must be honest in telling people these truths that are found in Scripture. I mentioned in our Sunday school last week about the book that Will Metzer wrote, The Gospel, The Whole Truth, Tell the Truth, The Whole Truth by the Whole People. If you don't have that book, I'd encourage you possibly to get that book and read it. I know we have it in our book room, which speaks about the best way to present the gospel to individuals and beginning in Genesis. So the Bible reveals to us how God has redeemed His people from the very beginning. And of course, the first two people that He redeemed was Adam and Eve after they had sinned against God, how they had fallen. They had free will. And by their free will, they continued to live, but then they chose in their free will to sin. And now we call man bondage of the will. He is in the bondage of the will because of their sin. They were our federal head. They resembled or represented every single one of us. They were the very best, and the very best failed. And as a result of their fall, we all are born in sin And therefore, our wills are in bondage. We are in bondage to sin. And as a result of that bondage to sin, we reject the gospel. We see that at the very beginning. There in Genesis, literally millions of people rejected the gospel that uh, that Noah preached for a hundred years. And he encouraged them that the judgment was coming, so therefore get on the ark. But only he and his family got on the ark and were protected from the flood. Everyone else was destroyed. Why? Because they rejected the gospel. They rejected Jesus Christ. They rejected what was offered by Noah. And then we see later another situation that occurred, and that was Sodom and Gomorrah, a great wicked city. And we know that they too rejected the truth of God and as a result of rejecting the truth of God, they too were destroyed. Only Lot and his family were saved. So time and time again, we see throughout history that the majority of people have chosen what? They've chosen to go their own way. They've chosen the path of wickedness. They have not chosen the path of righteousness. They rejected God and they rejected the free offer of the gospel. Today, people continue to do the same. People continue to reject the offer of the gospel. And therefore, we as Christians must continue to be faithful in presenting the gospel. Whether they accept it or not, we must be faithful in the task of presenting the gospel to them. We must follow in the path of those who have gone before us in presenting the gospel continuing to proclaim the gospel and pray that the Holy Spirit would take the gospel and drive it into their hearts so that they might be converted. That is our responsibility. We relieve the results up to God. Now I stated that there are four main points that we must remember when we present the gospel. And the first was God. We must present God, and I sought to do that last week. We focused on God. We spent the entire sermon on who God is, and of course I was only able to scratch the surface, and we dealt with the power of God. I hit a few high points concerning God. We could spend sermon after sermon. We could spend a year, and we still would simply scratch the surface of who God is. But I encourage you to study more about who God is. I encouraged you last week by saying if you would like a copy of the book, The Attributes of God, written by A.W. Pink, go and pick it up out of the book room. We have a number of them, and we'd love for you to have a copy of that so that you can understand a little bit more about God. A.W. Pink's book had a tremendous impact upon my life in understanding God and His glorious nature. And we must present God in His glorious nature when we present the gospel. God is other, as we looked at last week. He is glorious. 
He is holy, holy, holy. He is perfect in all that He does. God never makes a mistake. And He created man for a purpose. And that purpose is so that man might know Him and worship Him. And this is why Paul said, We know that all things work together for the good of them who love God to them that are called according to His purpose. So we see that God has a purpose for His people. That last word is of extreme importance, which is God accomplishing His purpose. No one can thwart God's purpose. He will accomplish His purpose. And we must tell sinners that God has a purpose in creating them. He is the potter and we are the clay. That's what the prophet Isaiah tells us in 64, 8. And He created all individuals. Now we know also from Scripture that He has created vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor as we see in Romans. I was speaking to somebody very recently and I was sharing with them that because they were talking about revelations and how difficult it is to understand revelation. And I said, well, you know, it's really not that difficult to understand revelation. If you want a difficult book to understand, go to Romans. Because it is a difficult book to understand. Because it will almost blow your mind when you begin to do a verse-by-verse study of Romans and how God has orchestrated all things in pertaining to this which I just mentioned there. Vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. Look with me at Romans chapter 9, beginning there in verse 6. It says, But it was not the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seeds of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called, that is, those who are children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are the counted as the seed. For this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac. For the children not yet being born, nor having done anything good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger, and it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now you want to talk about something difficult to deal with. Those verses are difficult to deal with because our mind automatically rejects those things that are stated right there. That God would do something like that before even two individuals were born. Well, he goes on and he says, what shall we say then? Is God unrighteous with God? Or is it unrighteous with God? Certainly not, because Paul knows that question is going to come up. Well, that's not right. That's not right for God. Well, the question is, is God unrighteous? He says, certainly not. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. So then it is not him who wills, nor him who runs, but of the mercy of God. And then he goes on, and he says in verse 23, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy that he has prepared beforehand for glory, and even us who are called, not of the Jews, only also of the Gentiles." So we see the reason why he does it is to show us who are vessels of mercy, how glorious it is that we have had his grace lavished upon us. I encourage you to study that chapter. And if you wrestle with it and you pray over it and you seek to understand it, you will see how glorious this salvation that we have is. And hopefully as a result of seeing how glorious this salvation is, you will want others to experience how glorious it is. You'll want others to come into the kingdom of God and therefore you will be aggressive in sharing the gospel with those that you come in contact with. We must tell sinners 
that God has a purpose in creating every single man and that He controls all things. And the main truth that we need to learn from these verses is that God is a gracious God. For no one, not a single individual, deserves His grace. That's the very meaning of grace. Unmerited favor. Unconditional love. The very thought that God would love us in such a way to save us from our sin. We who deserve death because of our sin would receive such grace is amazing. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we must stress how important it is who God is and the purpose that God has in creating man. Now this brings us to our second point concerning the gospel and that is man's great problem, that when we share the gospel, we must tell them that they have a great problem. But God has the answer to man's problem, and man must respond one way or the other. So let us continue by looking at our second point as we seek to present the gospel. The second point is that man has this great problem. And that problem is... He is a sinner, and his sins has separated him from a holy God. Sin has brought about many problems, wickedness, hatred, rebellion, sickness, divorce, sorrow, deception, sexual immorality, murder, and death, and I could go on and on and on. Everyone, every single person sees that there is something wrong in our world. They see this wickedness. They see this evil. They can't help but see it. So therefore we must point out the reason for all of this is because man is a sinful human being. Man's sinfulness has brought all this about. By nature, all men are sinners. We are in bondage to sin. And we have no ability in and of ourselves to live a godly life. Due to man's sinfulness, he breaks God's law, which brings forth all of this evil, all of this wickedness, so that these problems are due to man's sinfulness. Now, when men try to break the laws of nature, we can't really break the laws of nature. We try to break them. I mean, in other words, there's the law of gravity. You try to break the law of gravity and see what happens. I mean, go climb on top of the church and say, well, I'm going to try to break the law of gravity. You're going to end up with a lot of broken bones. You cannot break the law of gravity, but man, man tries to break the laws of nature. And things go wrong. Destruction comes about. Likewise, when we break God's law, things go wrong and destruction comes about. Therefore, we are experiencing the breaking of God's law, the consequences of that. Things go wrong because of the problem of sin. Conflict exists. And the greatest consequence of us breaking the law is death. The wages of sin is death, the scripture tells us. So we see that sin brings death, and everyone has sinned and broken God's law. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So every single human being deserves death. And until man sees his condition as a sinner, he cannot be saved. So he must see himself as a sinner. His eyes must be opened to see just how wicked and sinful he is. To see himself as God sees him. Now, of course, we can't see ourselves totally as God sees us, but we need to have some kind of idea of how sinful we are. Genesis 6, 5 says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continuously. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart proceeds evil thought, Murder, adulteries, fornication, theft, false witnesses, blasphemy. I mean, have you ever been doing something and you thought, 
Where did that come from? Where did that thought come from? Why did I do that? Well, Jesus tells us. It comes from the heart. Paul, in quoting uh, Psalms 14, there in Romans chapter 3, he says, beginning with verse 10, There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way. They have altogether become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they practice deceit. And the poison of ass is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's speaking about lost man, us in our unconverted state or that way. So scripture tells us clearly that we have a great problem and we must get that point across in our witnessing. We must press upon them. You've got a great problem. You might not realize it. You might not see it, but you've got a great problem. And your problem is that you are a sinner. Now, when you read Romans chapter 3 to them, verses 10 through 18, they're probably saying, no, that's not me. So therefore, you might have to spend a little bit more time convincing them that it, that is them and that they are sinning against the holy God, that they have a heart problem that they cannot deal with, and that's their greatest problem that they have. All our sins are first and foremost against God. He is the one whom we must get right with. We must answer to this God because this God is the one who created us and this God is the one who is the lawgiver. So if someone shoots a person, why is that wrong? Well, it's because God said, thou shalt not murder. See, God's law addresses every single sin that we commit. And we are sinners Now, we have to realize that there are those that may be worse than us, but we're still sinners and we deserve death. I'm not saying that everyone is equal. I mean, Hitler was a great sinner and the others that we could name, they were great sinners. But we are also great sinners, maybe not to the same level as some, but yet we have to realize that we've sinned against a holy God, an infinite God, and therefore, in our witnesses, we need witnessing, we need to get that across. We need to share with them that we ourselves were great sinners before we were saved, and that we continue to sin, but yet our sins are covered by the blood of Christ, and we can receive forgiveness. And we may even say to them, you know, I may be a worse sinner than you. You don't know my heart. You don't know what I do. But I realize that I'm a sinner in need of God's grace each and every day. So we need to get the point across to an individual that we are still sinners, but the difference is that we have been saved by grace and we have a desire to pursue holiness and put sin off and put on the righteousness. But we must tell a person that they cannot fix their own problem. Why? Because the problem lies at the heart. I mean, how many days do you think I live without breaking God's law? If you said none, you're correct. I mean, being awake, I don't even keep it for one hour, and probably even less. I mean, we are constantly breaking God's law every waking hour. Because there's times, just as Prasant prayed earlier, there's times that we don't do the things we ought to do. That's breaking God's law also, as well as knowingly breaking His law. We are sinners. No man except Jesus Christ has ever lived a single day without breaking God's law. Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I mean, there are those that go into a monastery. They think, well, going to a monastery, then therefore I won't be so sinful. I won't sin against God. Well, first of all, they're sinning by going in that monastery. Well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Because, see, their pride is full of sinfulness, thinking that they can go somewhere like that and they won't sin against God. That's pride. Thinking that in and of their self that they can do better if they're just alone without any people uh, 
confined to a room, thinking about God, studying His Word, that I'm going to be okay. Well, they're deceived in thinking that. Satan is right there, and Satan's right there to tempt them. Now, this great problem that we must uh, establish with them is that we are helpless to change our own heart. Apart from God's grace, we can do nothing. What does Jeremiah 13, 23 says, say? Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spot? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do an evil? Of course, that's a rhetorical question. No, there's no way that you who are evil can do good. Just like a person who cannot change the skin color and a leopard remove his spot. Man can make all kinds of resolution after resolution. But what happens? Well, the more resolutions he makes, the more he breaks. Because we can't do it. We have someone else to do it for us. He breaks his resolution because he is in bondage to sin. I mean, how many times do you say, well... I'm going to start going to church, or I'm going to start reading my Bible, I'm going to start praying, and all of these things before you were converted, and what? You didn't do them. You may have started out, but eventually you stopped doing them. Why? Because you have a heart problem, and that's what we need to get across to a person. But when the Holy Spirit works in one's heart, He comes to realize how big this problem is. And he realizes that his problem is more than with his spouse or, or with his children or job or finances or addiction, whatever you want to add, that his problem is much bigger than that because he must stand before a holy God one day and he must give an account for every single sin knowingly and unknowingly that he has committed. Romans 14, 12. So then, each of us, and Paul's writing to Christians here, each of us shall stand and give an account of himself before God. Matthew 12, 36 and 37 says, <clears throat> I say to you that for every single Idle word men may speak. They will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your word you will be justified and by your word you will be condemned. Did you hear that? Every single idle word we must give an account. Now there's a lot of us that say more than others. I know I say a lot more than you do when we're in here preaching, when I'm in here preaching. But we've got to give an account for every single word. When you think about that, in every single act, that's overwhelming. But yet every person one day will stand before this holy, holy, holy God and give an account. We must press this truth upon those who we witness to. At that point, they must totally shut us off. But we must speak the truth in love. We can't hide the truth. We must tell them what the Word of God says. Man's natural instinct is that he doesn't want to think about coming judgment. He doesn't want to think about standing before a holy God. That's one reason why people don't like to go to funerals. Because they're confronted with death as they see the casket there before them. They, they, they begin to think, one day I will be in that casket. Well, the question is, are you ready for that day when you will be in that casket? That's what we must press upon them. That they will have to stand before this God. But we have to understand that God will judge all people. Now, God doesn't change, and He will reveal His holiness, His hatred of all sin, and His punishment of all sin. Now, man tries to ignore that. He tries to ignore it. One way that he seeks to ignore it is that he seeks to redefine sin. Uh, It's a disease, he thinks. 
Or he may rename it instead of calling it what the Scripture calls it. Try to lessen the effect of it. I mean, even today they're trying to censor what we say about sin and calling sin. And therefore, we must continue to be faithful in doing it because, see, that's how the Spirit uses God's Word to pierce hearts. We need to call those sins that are an abomination and an abomination. That that's an abomination to God. Now, our society is not going to like that. But God wants us to do it, and God has commanded us to do it. So God hasn't redefined it, and He will punish all sin if it's not repented of. Now, God calls it transgression of the law, iniquity, falling short, missing the mark, evil and moral, an abomination, wickedness, disobedience, and we could use other words that He uses in Scripture to speak of sin. But the problem of sin is not primarily the relationship that we have with other people, even though that is sin. But ultimately, it is our relationship with God. And we see that David, King David, recognized that. And that's what he speaks of there in Psalms 51 when he says, For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is always before me. And notice what he says. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And you may be found just when and speak and blameless when you judge. Now, did he sin against Bathsheba? Yes. Did he sin against Uriah? Yes. Did he sin against his army? Yes. And we could go on and on and on. He sinned against multitudes of people. But, He understood that first and foremost, he had sinned against God. And until man comes to see himself like David and confesses and repented of his sins, he cannot be saved. Now with that as the foundation for our next point, let's go to our next point, which is the work of Christ. After we have laid down the fact of who God is, and then laid down the fact that we are sinners, that we have a great problem, and that problem is sin, then, and only then, are we ready to present the gospel. Ready to present, I should say, the good news of who Jesus Christ is. Those other two things must be laid down. They are the foundation of the gospel. So we must stress with them that they had this major problem And that is their problems with God, and it's that they've sinned against this holy God. Which is the good news that Jesus Christ came to deal with man's problem. Again, what is that problem, children? I repeated it over and over again, just spent I don't know how long on that. It is sin, sin against God. But God is the one that has sent His only begotten Son into this world to deal with our sin. Now, how did He deal with it? Well, first of all, He was born into this world without sin. As the Scripture says in Matthew 1, 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which is translated God is with us. So we see that God came in the form of a baby, born of a virgin. Jesus was not born into this world like you and me as sinners. He had no inclination whatsoever to sin. I mean, this is why He had to be born of a virgin, so that He would not receive the seed of Adam, which was a sinful seed, so that He would be born Innocent, sinless. That's why we must preach the virgin birth. He was completely free from all sin. He lived a perfect, holy, pure life from his birth till 33 years of age. He was like God, holy, pure, love, righteous, Never one time did he sin, nor did he ever have a desire to sin, nor did he ever think about sinning. Now that blows our mind. We can't comprehend that because we are sinners, 
And sin is always around us. And we're always tempted. And we're always thinking about it. And he kept every single law perfectly, as Hebrews 7, 26 says. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and has become higher than the heaven. So we see that the writer of Hebrews speaks of Christ and who he was and his nature. And we must show those who we witness to how wonderful Jesus really is. Now, where do we go to discover how wonderful Jesus really is? Well, Hebrews is one place we just read, but to the Gospels, to the four Gospels. And as we read and study the four Gospels and learn more about how glorious and wonderful Jesus is, then we need to convey that to those who are sinners and need Christ and tell them how wonderful He is, how He defeated Satan, how He healed people, how He raised the dead. Tell them about the woman at the well and how he ministered to her, how he dealt with the demoniac, how he dealt with Lazarus and and Zacchaeus and other people who needed him, how he glorious worked in their lives to bring them to God. And we must tell them that Christ was righteous before God in every single way, perfectly fulfilling the law so that he might be the righteous one. Also how he had the power and authority and ability to face evil and how he defeated evil, all of the forces of evil. He began defeating Satan, we know, there after 40 days in the wilderness. Uh, Last week, Seth did so adequate of a job in presenting how Christ there in the wilderness at his lowest point, physically speaking. Forty days in the wilderness without food and water. There in the wilderness, then Satan came. After 40 days, at his lowest point, we could say physically, we see that Satan was defeated by Christ as he came to him with temptation after temptation after temptation, all three temptations, Christ was able to overcome and be victorious. And eventually we know that he went to the cross and ultimately crushed the head of Satan, just as spoken of there in Genesis chapter 3, that he would crush the head of the serpent. How was he able to do that? Because he was God. God incarnate, Emmanuel, God is with us. As Jesus spoke in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And then he goes on and he says, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. What is he saying there? The Father is God, and I am God. Or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. In other words, all that I've done demonstrates that I am God. Only God can do the things that He did while He was here on earth. And all that Jesus did was prove that He was one with God, that He was God. And we must tell people that He is very God of very God. That's the heart of the gospel. A person cannot be saved unless he believes that Jesus Christ is God. This is why all the cults are lost. Those that are in a cult, they're lost. Why? Because all the cults deny that Jesus is God. They may say that He was a good man, that He did a lot of good works, and etc., etc. But yet, even like the Mormons, they say that He was born. He wasn't always existing. I mean, if he was born, then he was not God. So they don't believe that he's God. But yet that's the heart of the gospel. And we must tell people that they have to believe that Jesus Christ was God. And if they don't accept that Jesus Christ is God, then they cannot be saved. He is divine, the Son of God. And therefore, he alone is able to save his people from their sins. 
Scripture tells us, for he was made, for he made him who knew no sins to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we see that this Son of God, who was God, He what? He became sin on our behalf. In other words, He took all of our sins upon Him and paid for those sins there at Calvary, taking those sins upon Himself so that we might be set free from sin. Therefore, if we are in Christ, then our sins have been paid for. Now, you must tell them, that Christ died for sinners. And if you repent of your sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will be saved. You will receive His righteousness and be able to live by faith. What does Paul go on and say in Romans chapter 1, verse 17? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed by faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Well, who are the just? The just are those whom Christ died for. And those whom Christ died for shall live by faith because Christ has given them His righteousness and enabled them by His strength. He's the vine, we're the branches. He flows into us and enables us to live by faith. Now, my final point must be or is that we must call people to repentance. As we witness to them, we must call upon them to respond. Scripture says what? Today is the day of salvation, and we must press that upon them. God has not promised any of us tomorrow. Now, most of us, we will be living tomorrow, but He hasn't promised us tomorrow. I mean, there's all kinds of times when we think someone is going to live a long life that doesn't live a long life. So therefore, today is the day of salvation. And when the Holy Spirit is dealing with a person, they are usually like the Philippian jailer. They will cry out, what must I do to be saved? When the Holy Spirit gets a hold of a person's heart, he cries out for relief from his sin. He realizes that he needs something to happen in his life. And we must realize that we must press upon them that Christ is the one that can do that in their life. They must also realize that when a person becomes a Christian, that Christ is Lord of their life. It's not a two-step deal, as some people think, that you accept them as Savior, and then sometime later in your life, you can accept them as Lord. No. Scripture clearly teaches that if you confess with your mouth, what? The Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that He has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. So only if you confess Him as Lord that you surrender to Him, that you submit to Him, that you confess your sins to Him, that you believe upon Him, only then will you be saved. When this happens, then immediately you are brought into the family of God. In closing, I want to share what I heard this morning on the radio as I listened to Alistair Begg. I, I tell you, every Sunday morning I enjoy listening to him, and even sometimes during the week. But he was quoting Donald MacLeod, who was a Scottishman preacher. And his sermon, Amazing Grace. I would encourage every one of you. Now, I know some of you are not going to do it, but I'm going to encourage you anyway to go and listen to Alistair Begg's sermon on Amazing Grace in the series of Jonah, the very last sermon in that series of Jonah. A wonderful sermon. But listen to what Donald MacLeod said. Who has the right to believe? Who has the right to come to Christ? The question has been discussed thoroughly in Reformed theology, and the answer has been unambiguous. Every human being, without exception whatsoever, is entitled to come to Christ and to take Him as His own Savior. Every man as a man, every sinner as a sinner, the foulest, the vilest, the most vicious 
It was put in the strongest possible terms, had the right to come to. This was based on certain clear emphasis of the Word of God itself. For example, God commands every human being to believe. No one is exempt from the command. We have the right to come to Christ, whoever we are, because God commands us to come to Christ. We have the right, secondly, because God offers an invitation to come to Christ. Look unto me, and ye shall be saved, all the ends of the earth. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let the wicked forsake their ways, and let them turn to the Lord. The offer was absolutely universal. Third, there is a universal divine promise. If we believe... We shall be saved. That is God's promise. Now it is a conditional promise. The reward is conditional upon our believing. But God promises, and it is categorical. If we turn to God in Christ, we shall be saved. Alternatively, it can be put in these terms. The warrant is universal because it rises from the fact that the Bible explicitly states that there is no price to be paid. This salvation is utterly gratuitous. We receive the water of life freely. We take it without money and without price. Some Reformed preachers went to the length to express this fact that every human being, no matter how sinful, has the right to come and take Christ as his Savior. They were predestinarians of the deepest dye. Men like Thomas Boston, John Duncan, Martin Luther. But they believed equally firmly in the free universal offer of the gospel. John Duncan put it most viciously, Sin is the hand by which I get Christ. I don't read everywhere in the Word, anywhere in the Word, that Christ came to save John Duncan. But I read this, He came to save sinners, and John Duncan is a sinner. And that means He came to save John Duncan. Luther argued in the same way. He said to the devil, Thou sayest, I'm a sinner, and I will take thine own weapon, and with it I will slay thee, and with thy own sword I will cut thy throat, because sin ought to drive us away, not drive us away from Christ, but towards Christ. The Bible and Reformed theology have taught us to come, just as we are, just as I am, And waiting not to rid my soul of one dark plot. To thee whose blood can cleanse each spot. O Lamb of God, I come. Now it may be that Reformed theology, there is no theological answer to the question. How can it be simultaneously true that only the predestined are saved and that God commands all men to believe? All we can say is that both horns of the dilemma are equally valid. For the moment, our concern is with only one aspect of the truth. Every human being is warranted to come to Christ. The great thing here is the universal becomes particular. If all are warned, each is warranted. If each is warranted, I am warranted. This is supremely important in relation to those who are tempted to spiritually despair, the backslidden, those who were once bright, shining Christians, but from those lives the glory has gone, and who feels for them there is no hope. Wherever we stand, we have the warrant to believe. And the same warrant goes out today. Whosoever shall believe shall be saved. Let us be faithful in the task of being God's witnesses and going forth and pressing the gospel upon those who are sinners. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the privilege that we have to know that Christ has died for us and taken our sins upon him. And we thank you, Father, that you have called us to be ambassadors of the gospel. And we pray that we would be faithful to that task. We pray today, Father, that as the gospel has been shared, that it would pierce hearts of those who are unconverted, that they would see that if they would cry out to Christ in true repentance and faith, that they shall be saved. May that be so, Father. May your Spirit work and bring sinners to Christ this day in this place. We pray, Father, that as we leave this place, that we would keep these truths upon our mind and that we would look for opportunities to share the gospel with those that we come in contact with. We pray, Father, that you would bring people into our path this day to be able to share with them these truths that we are looked at. And that we would keep in mind how important it is that we tell people who God is and and tell them that they are great sinners, but yet there is a Savior who is able to save us from our sins and that we would demand a response from them, Father. Cause us to be faithful to this task, Father. Be pleased, Father, to bless this church with new members. Be pleased to bring many to Christ and save them so that they might be added to this family. And use us, Father, to be faithful. Even as we go out this afternoon, Father, to houses and knock on doors, we pray that you might give us opportunities to share these truths that we have been reminded of this day. Use us, Father, for your glory and honor. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake.